When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Ko-fi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I've got my Chief of Staff with me today. You all right, Willie? Hello, boss. How you doing? I'm good. I'm excited about this one because we always say it and then we don't do anything about it. We don't have enough Irish history on this podcast. There isn't Dorman taking the piss down the pub. This is true. Dorman, this one's for you. We're doing it properly this time. We are doing it. We're doing it for Dorman. So who did you find? So today we have Porrick Coffey, who is the author of This Day in Irish History. Basically, we're going to do a little montage of significant moments in Ireland's history. Porrick has a BA and a Master's from University College Dublin. He's a freelancer for the Sunday Independent. And this is his first book, which is inspired by a social media account that he runs of the same name. Porrick, welcome to History Hack. Great to see you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's just kind of dig a little bit into the the reasons behind this. So, as I said just now, you have a social media account of the same name. What was the kind of motivation behind setting that up and then taking that as a concept and escalating it into a book? So I started the social media account about 2018, so almost four years ago now, and I started it because I noticed that online on social media, anytime you logged in, you would see people commemorating the anniversary of significant events. It could be somebody's birthday or the day that somebody died, or it could be the day that if we're talking about history, an agreement was signed or a battle was fought. And I thought um, the history of Ireland is so vast, as is the history of every country, but the history of Ireland is so vast, but we tend to focus in on specific moments. And, you know, you could... Uh, theoretically take every single day of the year and find something interesting or significant that happened on that day and if you were to market on social media I thought people would be particularly interested in it because that's how, how, how I think people work they they sort of they like to mark occasions they like to to mark anniversaries and so on so I started there sort of deciding what would I put on each day and researching it and so on 
And the reason that I made the leap from social media to the book is social media, as you know, is very, very succinct. And, you know, especially on something like Twitter, you only have about 280 characters, which is about 40 words, if I, if I were to guess on average. And, you know, you really can't get across a lot in that time. You can get across the bare bones of something and you can maybe inspire somebody to seek out more information, whether that's through a book or through going down a rabbit hole on on wikipedia which i wouldn't always advise because i think wikipedia is flawed but it is it is good for 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 dates and figures and so on um and so writing a book allowed me to expand on that to go into a little bit more detail and that's that's where the book came from really this is really exciting so what you've done for planning is given us sort of eight events and uh, we were talking before we came on air about how you might not necessarily think about these topics in conjunction with Ireland but it's interesting because they do have this Irish connection which I'm excited to learn about so the first one you gave us comes from 1745 and so the first maternity hospital in the entirety of the British Empire was founded in Ireland. That's correct yeah so a man called Bartholomew, Bartholomew Moss who was a surgeon from Port Leash which is at the time known as Maryborough. Um, it's changed its name since then. He had travelled all throughout uh, England and France and Holland and uh, studying obstetrics and, and dedicating himself to obstetrics uh, as a surgeon. But he decided to, to build this maternity hospital uh, in Dublin. And what he did was he purchased or he, he came into possession of uh, an old building in George's Lane in Dublin, which used to be a theatre. It was actually a three-story building that used to be a theatre. And there's a famous actress, famous Irish actress and socialite called Ped Woffington, who used to perform there. Let's just put it in a bit of context. But when it started, it was very, very basic. It only had 10 beds, very basic equipment. But it was, uh, as you mentioned, the first maternity hospital in the whole of the British Empire, of which Ireland and many other countries, of course, at the time were a part. And uh, the first patient was admitted shortly afterwards. I think it was the 20th of March that year. Her name was Judith Rochford. And within a year, 200 women, 208 women, I beg your pardon, had been admitted and uh, all had delivered, although tragically 109 were, was the number of uh, babies who would survive. So there was a tragically high mortality rate, mortality rate in Dublin at the time, as there were in many cities. But this was a significant uh, uh, moment, I think, because of course we have maternity hospitals all over the world now. But it is funny to think that Dublin was where the, the very, very first one um, was founded. And it was founded, you know, um, in in the 1700s. So quite, quite a while ago. That's mad. It's like... What would have made a woman, because obviously for hundreds of years still, oh, like this is my call the midwife knowledge coming in now, people are still having babies at home um, way into the 20th century. So what would have driven a woman to go into hospital? Um, would it have been like a problem case and a doctor recommended it? Or would they just not want to do it at home? Because the norm is to do it at home, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it would have been. I, I, there, must, there, might, there must have been a feeling, I suppose, among the women that it was safer to do so. And maybe because of his expertise, Bartholomew Moss would have known that it was safer to do so uh, because it did it did become increasingly popular um, by uh, 1757. So about 12 years later, uh, 4000 babies have been born in uh, in this hospital, uh, which is known today as the Rotunda Hospital, although technically it did change its location. But um, and funnily enough, Leinster House, which is the parliament where the Irish uh, government meets, the Dáil, 
the person who designed that, a man called Richard Castles, was the same person who designed the Rotunda Hospital. So if you mention the Rotunda Hospital, Danny, but in Dublin, they'll know exactly what you mean. But in terms of um, uh, why women would have chosen to go there more, I, I imagine it would have been because of safety. Even though you see from that statistic I gave that the infant mortality rate was high, it, it has improved over time, thankfully. But um, yeah, yeah, I imagine that was probably the reason. So the rot- the rotunda that you've mentioned, that's going to be the site of many firsts, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. it exactly, because it was also the site of the first major international conference in the field of obstetrics after the Second World War, mm. which was not held. Uh, it was supposed to be, well, I suppose planned to be on the 200th anniversary of the hospital, but that would have been March 1945 which, as, you, as we know, uh, the world was still reeling from the Second World War. So it was actually held in 1947, but it was, it was meant to mark the 200th anniversary. And it was the British Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they met in the Rotunda and also in the Royal College of Surgeons and Physicians, which is also in Dublin. And today, the Rotunda Hospital is the, the oldest continuously operated maternity hospital in the world. So that, that is, I think, an interesting uh, first to think of in terms of Ireland. Definitely. I just just it blows my mind that that's anywhere in the British Empire, including Britain as well. Um, and I, I like that even going forward now and that it is still sort of a site of excellence in terms of mm-hmm. progression in the way things are done with obstetrics and gynecology as well. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to move on to another good one now, which is Martin's Law. I'm not going to spoil this one, but just tell us, first of all, about Martin's Law, what did it actually seek to do? So Martin's Law was the first piece of animal welfare legislation introduced in the world. The full title of it was the Cruel and Improper Treatment of Cattle Act, and it was introduced 22nd of July, 1822. It became known as Martin's Law because it was introduced by a man called uh, Richard Martin, sometimes known as Dick Martin or Humanity Dick Martin. And he was a representative of Galway County. Galway's in the west of Ireland, as many people will know. Um, so he was a, a, a member of parliament in the House of Commons. At the time, there was no Irish parliament. There had been one in the late uh, 1700s, which was abolished, and uh, Ireland representatives of Ireland took up their seats in the House of Commons. And um, he was very much uh, concerned with the welfare of animals, um, uh, uh, Richard Martin. Um, the, the law that was brought in, uh, said that anyone who had wantonly and crudely uh, beaten, abused or ill-treated animals, such as horses, cows or sheep, uh, would be fined uh, no less than 10 shillings and no more than five pounds, uh, provided that a complaint was made to a justice of the peace or a magistrate within 10 days of the offence in question. So uh, the reason that I think Dick Martin had this, this, this concern for animals, he had studied uh, at Harrow School under... Um, Samuel Parr. Samuel Parr famously said that, uh, quote, he that can look with rapture upon the agonies of an unoffending and unresisting animal will soon learn to view the sufferings of a fellow creature with indifference. So Samuel Parr, of course, had been very passionate in protecting animals. And this, this uh, he had instilled this into uh, Dick Martin, Richard Martin. Uh, so the, the, it, the law was introduced in 1822. And from there, two years later, Martin co-founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, along with 20 other people, um, including William Wilberforce. Um, and then two years later, it was granted royal status by Queen Victoria, and it became the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, uh, 
and then 11 years after that, 11 years after uh, the, the, the initial uh, Martins Act, the uh, Cruelty to Animals Act 1835 was introduced, which consolidated further protections in law for animals. So this one was sort of, um, it's, I think it's very much part of British history as well, because it was a British law. The reason that I think it's interesting is because, of course, uh, Richard Martin was a representative of an Irish constituency, um, because Ireland was part of the UK at the time. He, he, he had an interesting background. His parents were both Catholics, but at the time, Catholics were not able to uh, take up their seats in the House of Commons. That would change shortly afterwards with the uh, Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829. Uh, so his parents had raised him Protestant for the purposes of his being able to sit in Parliament, with, because at the time they had a thing called the Test Act, which meant you had to renounce your Roman Catholic faith if you were to sit in Parliament, which, of course, is gone today. But um, So he did have an interesting background, but... Um, very much part of British history, but also an interesting kind of part of Irish history also. How much of a fight did he have to get it through Parliament? Was this something that he had to kind of keep coming back to and work up to? Uh, I'm not fully aware, to be honest with you. I imagine there would have been some resistance at the time, because, of course, livestock agriculture would have been a huge part of Britain and Ireland at the time. Um, nevertheless, he was successful in getting it through, and uh, his subsequent career proves it. It is something that he was, was happy with once it had gone through. He kept going back in terms of founding what became the RSPCA and so on. Uh, I, in terms of how much resistance he had, I, I actually don't know. I would, need to, I would need to look into that further. I want to move next, uh, going forward a couple of decades, to asking you what happens in Ireland on the 3rd of June, 1844. So th- we're also uh, going back to medicine here after the, yeah. the, first, the first mention and uh, the hypodermic needle being used for the first time. I did so, not know that that was invented by an Irishman. That's true, yeah. So Francis Rind was a doctor uh, who worked in Dublin's Meath Hospital, which has been since incorporated into Tala Hospital, which is sort of uh, outside Dublin City. It's in the county of Dublin. And he invented this uh, device. And I'm sure there would have been parallel, very similar inventions at the time, but he's credited with inventing this device, the hypodermic needle, that year, because he had a patient who was suffering from quite an intense bit of pain in her face. Uh, her name was Margaret Cox. And in order to deal with this, she had uh, been drinking uh, a solution that had morphine in it, but it wasn't being as effective as it might have been. So what he did was he, he created an improvised syringe with a small tube and he allowed morphine to flow through it. So he kind of pierced, pierced her skin. So when we think about the hypodermic needle today, I mean, we're talking about a very, very early version of it, where it's not, a, it wouldn't really stack up with what we have today. But um, nonetheless, it was, it was a first at the time. And uh, a couple of years later, in March 1846, in, in the Dublin Medical Press, Francis Rind uh, wrote an article about this, uh, and it sort of explained uh, how he had how he had created it and how he had helped this patient. What he said was, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I'll, I'll read it. In the space of a minute, all pain, except that caused by the operation, which was very slight, had ceased. And she slept better that night than she had for months. After the interval of a week, she, she had slight return of pain in the gums of both upper and under jaw. The fluid was again introduced by two punctures made in the gum of each jaw and the pain disappeared. She left the hospital on the 1st of August in high spirits and promised to return if she ever felt the slightest pain again. So you could already see that this was a very effective uh, form of treatment uh, that, he, that he had kind of come up with, Francis Rind. And of course, it's been used 
billions of times around the world. Um, Florence Nightingale famously used it in the Crimean War in 1866. And even she referred to it as a curious little newfangled operation. The, her, her actual quote is, nothing did me any good, but a curious little newfangled operation of putting opium under the skin, which relieves one for 24 hours. So um, anytime you see a hypodermic needle in use today, you can sort of trace that back to Dublin in the mid 19th century. So Florence Nightingale was taking opium <laughs> uh, according to her own words yes but I, I think that might have been more more par for the course back then than it, than it would be today just I struck think, me as surprising. yeah Zach, I think if we had a chat about Florence Nightingale quite a, a few things would surprise you about stuff that she wrote down um but let's move on I just I'm a little bit squeamish about the idea of the the principle of just stabbing this woman in the face with a new invention um, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. now people get Botox all the time, like it's like whatever. But at the time, if you've got a doctor coming to, she must have been in some amount of pain to go, uh, yeah, stab me in the face with that pointy thing that I've never seen in my life before and that no one's ever heard of. She must have been in some pain to take that. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine so. But uh, it worked in the long run. So it's good. Yeah. I mean, it does. It said that she was to come back if she felt any pain again, but you, you didn't find anything. Um, of that and they've actually they've named uh, the stuff named after him isn't there yeah the the phlebotomy service in uh, Tala University Hospital is called the Rhind Unit in honor of them so those who those who study medicine in Dublin in, in the Tala Hospital would be aware of uh, would be aware of him but he's not as widely known as you might think so it's nice to get a mention of him today definitely so we're going to move on to something a bit more kind of perhaps in Alex and mine's wheelhouse, which is warfare, basically, blowing stuff up. Um, We're going to talk about a torpedo, the Mm -hmm. Brennan torpedo. Question of ignorance here, before we start kind of talking about the the invention itself and the guy behind it. Is this the first torpedo or or the first successful test? I think it's the first uh, practically or practical guided Missile. So there would have been torpedoes before beforehand, but this one was, I suppose, the first the first one that was practically guided, which was successful. So saying it's the very first torpedo is probably not the case. I'm sure someone with more expertise than 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 I have would be able to correct me if I were to say that. But uh, it 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 did end up becoming quite a successful weapon of war, and it was uh, designed by a man called Louis Brennan, who was again this is sort of an example of of how Irish history sort of. Um, blends in with the history of other countries because you could say this was an Australian first really because he lived most of his life outside of Ireland Louis Brennan it was in Australia where he tested it in Melbourne but he was born in Ireland he was born in Castlebar in the west of Ireland in uh, uh, 1852 beg your pardon uh, which many people will know that was kind of during the period just after or at the very end of the famine which was of course a calamitous event in Irish history massive uh, loss of, of population there um, and in fact he had 10 siblings five of whom are said to have died during the famine so quite a tragic story which again wouldn't have been unusual we touched upon the infant mortality rate earlier in Dublin uh, so when he was nine years old uh, Louis Brennan and his family moved to Melbourne but he'd always had an interest in uh, in, in, in innovation and in technology and so on. He's been described as, this is a quote from the Irish Times, which is the, the sort of the best-selling newspaper in Ireland, surely Ireland's most remarkable inventor. 
and, and what he invented, which came to be known as the bread and torpedo, was the world's first practical guided missile. And the first uh, that, I, that I mentioned in the book is the 21st of March, 1879, in Hobson's Bay, Melbourne, where he tested this missile. And uh, it, I mean, by the standards of modern weapons, it probably wasn't that impressive. It, it, it went for 400 yards uh, for just over a minute at 11 knots, but it did hit its target. And there were journalists and other people present on the day. And it was said to, as reported on the day, said to have excited wonder and approbation. Um, he was, he'd been granted a patent for the invention the year before in uh, 1879. Uh, the full title of it was Improvements in Machinery for Propelling and Guiding Vessels on Land and Through Air and Water. So quite a cumbersome title, as you can imagine, for a lot of uh, inventions at the time would have had. But uh, this went on to, to be used uh, quite a lot for defence. In 1887, the British Parliament agreed to the payment of uh, £110,000, which was enormous amount of money at the time, to the War Office for the exclusive use of this torpedo. And since then, it's been used uh, everywhere from Malta to Hong Kong. The production discontinued in 1600, or I beg your pardon, uh, 1906. Uh, but nonetheless, it was it, for many decades sort of a, the go-to for, for guided missiles and invented by uh, an Irish person. So what made this particularly great? What was so kind of, I'm not sure if revolutionary is quite the right word, but what, what was the, the fuss, inverted commas, about when it came to this whole propulsion thing. Do we have any sense of this being a sort of a watershed moment? Because in time, as you say, you know, 1906, it gets phased out. What's the, what is it about this that makes it really key for this period of history? I believe it was its accuracy, because of course there would have been many other similar similar weapons at the time, but uh, we you you can't be assured of can't be assured of how successful they would be, and this was much more precise. Um, Brennan was involved in other inventions in his lifetime, uh, but this is the one that, that he's most remembered for. And um, the fact that the war, the, the war office was to receive so much money for it shows that it, it was more reliable, perhaps, than other maybe competing weapons at the time. Is this the invention that makes him then? After this, is it all kind of, does he end up with a lot of commissions? And, or is this kind of the high point of his career and it's all down here, downhill from here? I wouldn't say that it's the the uh, all downhill all downhill from here, but he it, it is probably the one that he is uh, most remembered for. He also worked a lot with uh, monorails and trains and railways and that kind of thing, which uh, a little bit less destructive. Um, I've, I've heard, funnily enough, because of the social media site, I get a lot of people commenting and so on. And some people have said, you know, this isn't something that we should celebrate, uh, and perhaps that we should focus more on on his work with locomotives, but. Um, it, it was probably the one that he is most remembered for, although he did have a, a long and, and a long and, and varied career that isn't really gone into in the book. The book really just covers this one event because it's sort of, a, I think, the one that I think most people would be interested in. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
I like it. Um, we're not just going to talk about men, though, are we? So tell us why 22-year-old Una Keo makes it in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Unikil was a um, woman who was the first stockbroker admitted to the Dublin Stock Exchange, which it is said, and again, there may be someone with more expertise who could contradict this, but it is said that she is the world's first woman stockbroker. So she was admitted in 1925. Um, and if you wanted to look at other major cities around the world, like New York or London, the first woman was admitted to the New York Stock Exchange in 1967. Wow. And the first woman... And the first woman was admitted to the London Stock Exchange in 1973. So quite a, quite a long time later. And um, this isn't to say that uh, women in Ireland are decades ahead. Anybody who has a knowledge of Irish history, particularly contemporary Irish history, will tell you that is not the case. But I, that's why I found it so interesting that she was the first woman uh, to stockbroker in the world, according to what is written about her. I really like it. So tell us about how um, she got her job then. So her father had been a stockbroker uh, too. Uh, his name was Joseph Kyo. Uh, at the time, in order to become a stockbroker, you needed an application fee of £500. And you also needed to hold securities of more than £2,000. So mm. quite a bit of money at the time. And she needed, um, obviously, people to vouch for her. So her father did, and so did a man called Patrick Hogan, who was the Minister for Agriculture in the Irish state, the very, very new fledgling Irish state at the time, which had only recently become independent of the UK in 1922. Um, but that, is, that was her entry point into, into the world of, of being a stockbroker. Uh, so, but there was some opposition, wasn't there, when she first, I mean, she has this money to put up, like the two and a half grand to put up, but not everybody's happy. Yeah, it wasn't sure whether she would be able to apply, but there was no way of, of stopping her. So, so a few weeks after her application, she was approved, but absolutely there was opposition. And she even spoke about this herself. Uh, years later in 1971, she said that one of the disadvantages in those days uh, was that women did not socialise in men, this is her quote, with, with men in lounges and pubs. And when the men retired to Jury's, which is a, a hotel in Dublin, uh, to relax after transacting business, I could not accompany them. So even though we, we could look at this and say what a fantastic achievement it was for her it would be wrong to say that she did not face opposition even uh, during her career and before her career began and she um she, she, it goes through the minister of finance is that right that's what gets her through the door that's true yeah yeah it was necessary for the minister of finance to approve her application 
which uh, then brought her on to the Dublin Stock Exchange, uh, which she did. She remained active on, but not for not for that long, really. She she retired in uh, 1939, um, and she she sort of had fallings out with her father. Uh, they did clash a little. Um, she began trading on his behalf when he fell ill shortly after she joined the Dublin Stock Exchange, but um, it wasn't all smooth sailing. And then later in life, she, uh, she after her retirement, she um, basically moved to rural Ireland and she lived for quite a long time. She died in 1988, so 60 plus years after she was admitted, but but uh, still a first that I think uh, not enough people are aware of and something that would be worthy of exploration in more detail if someone were to buy, write like a, a biography of, of Una Kio, I think. Yeah, I think the, the two things that struck me firstly were that it brings her into conflict with her dad um, while mm-hmm. she's sort of, because she trades on his behalf, doesn't she? And then she's do- doing his business for him. Uh, so mm-hmm. not even he can handle the idea of his daughter doing it, but also as well, this idea that she does the same job as them uh, makes mm-hmm. people money, and then when they all go for drinks after work, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just is an indication of yeah, exactly the sort of uh, the social barriers that existed for women at the time, and and you know to to a lesser extent exists today, but you know th- there are still those barriers there, and and if you if you can imagine you know the eighties, the nineties, the seventies, I mean we're talking about you know the very very early twentieth century, so yeah, huge barriers in place for women in the workplace. This next one's a bit grim. Um, We're going to talk about somebody being burnt at the stake. What made you want to include this particular story in your book? So this is probably the the oldest entry we're going to talk about today. It was uh, the 3rd of November, uh, 1324. The reason I wanted to include it is it is quite quite an interesting story. Um, When you're dealing with history this far long, long ago a lot of the details are lost and you can't be as precise as you might want to be but this was the first time that uh, uh, witchcraft and heresy had been linked in either Ireland or Britain at the time so probably in the in the wider world also a first uh, a woman called uh, Petronilla de Meath was burned at the stake and uh, quite, a, quite a grim story. She had been flogged as well several times. So not exactly a moment of celebration, but uh, quite interesting when we think about, you know, the Salem witch trials and, and subsequent history that, that we're all aware of, that, that the first of this happened in the, the early 1300s in Ireland. So tell us about her and her story, because it's not just her that's involved in this, is it? You've got somebody called Alice Kiteller as well. Yeah, that's correct. She was actually Petronilla de Meath. She was the maidservant to Alice Keitler, Dame Alice Keitler, um, who had been married three times and uh, had been suspected of being a witch. Now, I say suspected of being a witch. Most people listening to this today probably don't have a belief in witchcraft. Maybe they do, but um, it would have been much more widely spread at the time. But she had actually fled Ireland at the time of this scandal, as it were. What happened was that her her husband, John Lepore, he became ill and her children went to uh, the Bishop of Ossery in Kilkenny, where she lived, Kilkenny in Ireland. And uh, it was he who, who led these accusations of witchcraft against her. She then left, Ar- left uh, Ireland and it was unfortunately her maidservant who was linked to these crimes, was flogged and was burnt at the stake. So quite a brutal, quite a brutal end for this young woman. The, the whole story around Kaitel is quite, 
quite bizarre, really, isn't it? I mean, she's said to have renounced Christ. Tell us about the, the potions as well. And um, there's some, <laughs> looking through the notes, it's it's just pure history hack. You've got unbaptized babies. You've got dead men's fingernails. This is all quite peculiar. Yeah, the, this, this is what she was accused of doing. She was accused of having renounced Christ. Uh, she was re- accused of having made potions in the skull of a convicted criminal. Um, and of, as you said, using um, un- unbaptized babies and, and men's fingernails. So quite a grim, evocative image you, could, you can imagine there, uh, probably as grim as you could get. And she was excommunicated from the church and had her prop- property confiscated. So although she left and she avoided the worst of this, which was to say uh, being being flogged and being burned at the stake, she did suffer as a result of this. Um, although uh, there was a sort of a, a button to this story because... She returned uh, to Ireland later on and um, she lived after she left Ireland, she lived under the, under, under the protection of Edward III. And later that a few years later, I believe it was 1329, um, she had the Bishop of Ossery's uh, revenue seized and he was accused of heresy. So he, she kind of turned the tables on him and then he left Ireland. And did not return until the 1340s. So it became this, this drama. Now, what I'm giving is obviously a very, 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 very short version of the history. And there are uh, historians of that period who would be able to go into far more detail and maybe even pick pick up one or two things that are not accurate. But nonetheless, I thought it was a great story. You know, um, if, you, if you can talk about these things in terms of there being great stories, uh, you know, uh, witchcraft, convicted criminals, skulls, unbaptized babies, flogging, burn at the stake. Obviously, there was a real person here. You know, you wouldn't forget that, but uh, still a really, a really interesting and and grim story. Why doesn't Petronilla get out with Kaitella? Does Alice Kaitella just kind of leave her behind? Or because, I mean, maidservant, you'd, you'd think, well, maybe a member of the household, you'd take with you so yeah um, I, I'm not fully sure I imagine maybe it was a case of, of her having to get out urgently and therefore one one of the one of the cases where Petronetta was not able to get out with her but uh I mean I doubt she she threw her to the wolves as it were I, I'd say it was just one of those things unfortunately things where sadly the the, the maidservant was bore the bore the brunt of the of the uh, punishment that was meted out at the time I think we should stick with women for the next one. Um, we're still in the 20... Oh, we're still going back now to the same sort of era as um, Una to talk about Lillian Bland. Now, this was the one on your list that I had already heard of. So Lillian Bland, who was she and why does she make it onto the list? So Lillian Bland was actually born in Kent in England, but her father was a native of Carnmany in County Antrim, which is north of Belfast. And she was the first woman in the world to construct and pilot her own plane, which was a phenomenal achievement at the time. Uh, She had moved back to uh, County Antrim after the death of her mother, but she'd been obsessed with the Wright brothers ever since they they had taken off in uh, the early 1900s and she, she, she'd been obsessed with aviation and so on. So what she did is she started building planes in her uncle's workshop. Uh, she started with models, things that would be flown with a kite and then she created her first full-scale attempt at a plane which was called the Mayfly and the reason it was called the Mayfly according to her is that she said it may fly or it may not. So it was kind of I a like witty that. name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. And um, 
So she built this, she built this plane herself and uh, she took off from uh, Shane's Castle Estate in Randallstown, County Antrim uh, on the 31st of August, 1910. Um, and uh, it, it, she, she didn't go very high. She was about 30 feet off the ground she, for about a quarter of a mile, but still huge achievement at the time. Uh, in, when she was building the, building the plane, she actually went to Manchester herself to get an air-cooled engine and brought it back. She'd ordered it, but there'd been delays. So the fact that she, you know, left her home, went to Manchester to get this engine, brought it back, uh, paid a hundred pounds for it uh, at the time as well. It showed how kind of dedicated she was. She wasn't going to sit back and wait for things to be delivered to her. She was very, very much um, a get up and go kind of kind of person. So this was, I thought, really interesting. You know, we all know about Amelia Earhart, who also gets mentioned in the book, even though she's not Irish, but she does get mentioned in the book. But uh, I thought this was a really interesting, uh, interesting moment that this woman to have um, built and piloted her own plane for the first time. I really like this. I just love her. Um, I love her just pig headedness with getting it together. And I love the name. What did she have to say about the experience of putting this airplane together and getting it off the ground? So she wrote um, to a magazine at the time called Flight Magazine, which is all about aviation. And she described the process of, of building it. And this is what she said, and kind of show how, how independent she was. She said, I made her entirely myself, with the exception of the metal clips, and of course, the sockets, strainers, etc., which were bought from English firms. I think she's the first biplane made in Ireland. So um, clearly somebody who knows her stuff, who's done her research, who's really focused and dedicated on it. And uh, yeah, and the result is this, this first in, in aviation. Um, another thing about it is, of course, the fact that she was a woman did play a part of this. And years later, uh, when she was 88 years old, um, she told the Western Morning News, which is a newspaper, she said, I could hardly believe it. I had proved wrong the many people who had said that no woman could build an airplane. And that gave me great satisfaction. So that shows to show it, it was a first in aviation. It was also a first for a woman and for a uh, for uh, achievements that maybe some people would not have uh, thought women capable of. Really of a way to stick it to yeah. the <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. So you don't think women need the vote. You don't think women can build a plane. You don't think women can fly. Well, I've done two of those things. Um, maybe it's time for the third to come around. We're going to stay in the early 20th century for the last one. Alex is jealous that I've nicked this one. I know. I'm like, how did I let this happen? How did I let this go the wrong way around? <laughs> I know, I know. But you got your plainy stuff, so no complaints, mm-hmm. because we're going to talk about the first tank, aren't we? We are. Yeah, so the first tank uh, was designed, was first used in, the, in, in, in 1916 during the First World War, obviously. But... Um, it had its origins. It was sort of the, the brainchild of more than one person. But the person, the reason I'm linking it back to Ireland is that it was an engineer from Blackrock in Dublin called Walter Gord Wilson, who uh, was responsible for one of the most unique things about the first tank. Uh, it was used at the Battle of uh, Fleurs Corcelles in France when 49 British tanks were assigned to reach the German lines, which were a mile away. Now, they weren't all successful. Only nine of them were. But it, as a result of this new weapon of war, uh, Field Marshal Douglas Haig ordered a thousand more of them. 
now, Walter Gordon Wilson, just as a bit of background on him, as I mentioned, he was from BlackRock in Dublin. He's been described as uh, a genius, quote unquote, a genius for things like gearboxes. And he'd also been a Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve Officer. Uh, so a little bit of background. February 1915, Winston Churchill established the Admir uh, Admiralty Landships Committee, which was to help the stalemate in the Western Front during the First World War. Um, and so much of what we think of as tanks was being designed at the time, but of course there were these thick trenches and the vehicles were only going so far and they were collapsing in. And what Wa Walter Gordon Wilson did, which, which is still something we think about today when we think about tanks, was he, he overcame the problem of their getting over trenches, which was to uh, design tracks which looped around the entire body of the, of the vehicle. Uh, the prototype for this was a vehicle called Mother. So, um, yeah, that's basically that's basically it. Uh, it. It wasn't a. It wasn't in terms of uh, warfare. I mean, when we think about it, we think about achievements of warfare. It wasn't a tremendous gain on the Germans. It only gained five miles on them. But uh, you know, we still talk about the tank today. In fact, Bovington Tank Museum has a has a has a line here about this particular tank that was built. The direct military impact of the tank can be debated, but its effect on the Germans was immense. It caused bewilderment, terror, and concern in equal measure. So They literally uh, run away screaming when they see these things because the secret is so well kept in September 16, and the Germans mm -hmm. have not jumped on this technology at all. They've, it's completely mm -hmm. passed them by. And they mm -hmm. literally crap their pants when they see these things belching fire from machine guns and coming towards them. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, the the moral the morale victory is is quite something. Mm -hmm. I should mention also William uh, Tritton, who was um, the managing director of an agricultural machinery company uh, called William Foster and Co. in Lincoln in England, who began working on, on this you know armored vehicle at the time and became known as Little Willie. Uh, so it was it, he. It was he and uh, Wilson who worked together who came up with it. But it was Wilson who came up with the looped tracks, which is why it's uh, it, it was so successful. Even though we may not think of it as being that successful, but why it was so successful compared to maybe other prototypes that had been developed at the time. So that Wilson's not done when it comes to the tank after that point, is he? What's his role as things progress over the course of the war? So after mother was designed that it was built in 99 days he went on uh, wilson went on to the uh, metropolitan carriage and wagon company near birmingham and he supervised uh, the manufacture of mark one tanks uh, 125 of which were ordered for metropolitan and 25 from lincoln from the company that i mentioned earlier and uh, yeah it went on from there and then they were the ones that were used in the first world war yeah and to think that so much in terms of revolution and tactical doctrine comes out of that one invention. Um, so one guy having a massive impact, not just in the history of the war, but also world history and the way in which wars are fought. Porik, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Just tell people, remind them about the, the book's name, where they can get it. Hint, don't go to Amazon people, find other ways of buying it. Um, but also how they can find you because you're on Twitter. 
Yeah, so thanks very much again for having me. Uh, the name of the book is This Day in Irish History by Pora Coffee. Um, you can get it from all the usual the usual places you would get books if, if it isn't in your local bookstore. I'm sure they could order it in for you. Um, certainly uh, Waterstones or WH Smith, but I mean, if you wanted to go somewhere more independent, you could go down that route. Um, and as for online and on Twitter and Facebook and so on, uh, it's just the handle of this day, Irish. So the three words together, there's no underscores or spaces there. And yeah, I update that every day, pretty much. Uh, most of what I update relates back to something in the book. So if you see something you're interested in, you can always get more information from the book. Although occasionally I'll include something that I didn't have time to work into the book because I, you know, you are limited, even when you write something like this, you are limited, you can't talk about everything, you have to sort of pick and choose. But um, yeah, I'd absolutely love it if, if anyone who was interested were to give me a follow there. Fantastic. There you go, folks. You know what to do. Porik, it's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.